Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for the morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. In the film Avengers Infinity War, the story's arch-villain Thanos destroys one half of humanity with the snap of a finger. In the book of Genesis and later in the Gospel of Matthew, one half of humanity is threatened, not by an arch-villain, by God himself. This mechanism in which God undermines instead of lifting up, in which heroes fall instead of rising, is the Bible's literary bulwark against the machinations of imperialism. Unfortunately for Jerusalem and Rome, unlike the Marvel Cinematic Universe, if the Lord snaps his fingers in the Bible, it can't be undone. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 24, verses 36 to 41. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 378 of the Bible as Literature podcast. We keep saying something that should be obvious, but is not only not obvious in the United States, but I'm pretty sure people have published papers saying something is wrong with this statement. Fortunately for us, when we hear literature, we get to enter into the world of the author. And in the world of the biblical writers, dad is in charge. In this country, the children are in charge. In this country, you're supposed to listen to what your son or daughter wants to say. And the reason you want to listen to your son or daughter is because you want the authority figure in your life to listen to you. That's fine. You want to run this society that way. We're not arguing with this society. We are explaining that to understand Scripture, you have to enter into the world of Scripture. In the world of Scripture, the Father does not listen to Jesus. The message comes from the Father, and Jesus is assigned to deliver the message. This is the problem. People don't get the message. People want to own the message. They want to manipulate the message. They want to give a thumbs up to the message because they agree with it. They cannot handle a message imposed on them on high. Up until this point, Jesus has been preaching a message of vulnerability. You're not going to be saved by your walls. There's going to be a time of tribulation when you're going to be fleeing to the hills, when the mothers and the pregnant women are going to be especially vulnerable. It's been a message of vulnerability. 
in order for the people to seek refuge in God alone. And I was just listening to a man talking this morning about a Christian response to death. And he said, everyone who dies of cancer or anyone who's been around someone who's dying of cancer sees that they lose their faculties one by one. First, they can't walk. Then they can't eat. Then they can't keep food down at all. Eventually, they lose these. And he said, the correct Christian response is to realize that you're dependent more and more on God. Because each one of these faculties was a gift from God in the first place. That you can't depend on yourself and your ability to walk, because this is simply a mercy, a gift, a grace given by God, which can be taken away at any time. But your faith has to remain in the Father no matter how vulnerable you find yourself. And so in this passage, we see how the people want to keep themselves secure, but they have to hand the security over to God, realizing that it's only God who can keep them secure anyway. In the Gospel of John, when Jesus intercedes with the Father. Lazarus is raised from the dead. But the listening along the lines of what you were just saying, Richard, is the expression of the son's dependence on the father because his friend died. People always philosophize about the tears of Jesus Christ in the Gospel of John, and they give every explanation except the most obvious one which is that he was sad because his friend died. They don't want to give the obvious explanation because then they have to explain why he was sad because they're too busy theologizing about his omnipotence. But the reality is his friend died because his father made him stay back to prove a point. And he was sad So he asked his dad to bring Lazarus back. And his dad brought Lazarus back. If his dad, who made him stay back, chose not to raise Lazarus, Jesus would not have had his friend back. He was dependent on his father. Lazarus, Eleazar, means God is my helper. It's exactly the point that is being made here in Matthew about Israel's dependence on God. Their wall, their temple, their army is not going to save Jerusalem. So please understand the helplessness of Jesus himself is essential for hearing and understanding what's happening here in the gospel. It's an excellent point, Richard. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. The Father alone. And I said it last week, I'll say it again this week. Can we please get past the silly psychological, sociological neuroses of 2021 and stop talking about gender. Everybody knows, everybody knows that the Queen of England is the king. Her husband is not the king. He's the prince. 
the Queen of England is the functional king. It has nothing to do with gender. The Queen of England bestowed the title of Duke on Prince Philip. People used to joke about how Prince Philip walked six steps behind the Queen. It's not about gender. It's about station. It's about function. Clearly, it's about function. Prince Philip fulfilled his function, not as queen, but as consort to the queen. That's what he was called informally. <laughs> that doesn't sound very informal to Americans, but to a Brit, this is informal, consort to the queen. And in this passage, in this verse, some manuscripts say, my father only, and other ones say, the father only. I think it's important that some copyists decided to include my father, because it's not any old father who knows this. It's the father of Jesus Christ who knows the day and the hour. And the fact that he didn't even let the angels know means that he didn't have any messages to send. The reason why you'd let the angels know is because they're messengers and they need to send messages to somebody. The angels aren't just up there curious, saying, hey, God, what are you up to today? That's not why he didn't tell them, because he just didn't want to indulge their curiosity. But the angels are like social media. When you're told, do not post this on social media, you don't post it on social media. When you don't want the world to know, you don't post it on social media. The father of Jesus did not want this posted on social media. The day is going to come when he decides. And if he posts it on social media and then it doesn't come in the way and the time that people expect, then people are not going to like his post and they're going to be upset and they're going to comment and they're going to share saying, who's this God think he is anyway? Everyone's going to have an opinion. The Father lets everyone know now's the time and that's enough. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. And of course, the book of Genesis has what I consider to be the greatest line in the history of all lines in the Bible. In fact, I made a bumper sticker of this at one point and gave it to Father Paul as a birthday gift, Richard. <laughs> then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And here it comes, my favorite line in Scripture. The Lord was sorry that he had made man upon the earth. That's the bumper sticker. And he was grieved in his heart. I always recite this verse whenever a PBS program comes on that talks about how wonderful humanity is and the triumph of the human spirit and the achievements of humanity. I just whisper in my kids' ears, yeah, but the Lord was sorry that he made us. <laughs> I mean, come on. What kind of a book, what kind of a story talks this way? The story is inhuman. The story is divine because no human being would write a sentence like this. You can't market 
a story like this. It's not marketable. There's no way you can say, come to my church and hear about how God was sorry he made you. (laughs) And now he's going to wipe you out when you least expect it. This is what Jesus is invoking now in Matthew. We see these churches called the Church of All Who Sorrow. Why don't we have the Church of God Who Sorrows? Because that's what you get to hear when you go into church. And these verses are so profound. They strike at the heart of wisdom of so many cultures. In Buddhism, there's this concept of detachment. You don't grasp this world. You don't hold on to this world. You don't hold on to this life. The Dalai Lama even says, you know, it's good to spend some time meditating on the miserable parts of life because then you are more realistic about what life really is like. Think about how people suffer. Look at people who suffer. Suffer with people who suffer. And you start to understand that for some people, death is not the worst option. Leaving this life is not the worst option. These days that were coming, people were attached to their eating and drinking, marrying and living their lives and enjoying life. Now, there's nothing wrong with enjoying life. The only problem is that they were wicked and they didn't care. They only cared about their feasts and their marriages. The same person who was talking about death and the Christian life He's living in Uganda. He said the average Ugandan goes to two funerals a month. And the interviewer said, huh, I probably go to two funerals a year maybe. And he said the great thing about Uganda is they understand what death means. But as Americans, we want a perpetual feast. We want a perpetual buffet. Buffets are like typically American. (laughs) We think they're Asian. They're not Asian. The Asian buffet was invented in the United States. There's not less death in America. We're just less connected to each other. There's death all around us, but we don't care about each other. We were having a discussion about the problem of race in the United States and the riots here in Minnesota, and someone made the comment that Americans— just don't care what happens to other Americans. I mean, they give lip service to it. You know, someone always utters platitudes about how they don't have any hate in their heart and they feel sad about what happened. But that's lip service. Who cares that you don't have hate in your heart? That doesn't mean anything. I mean, what is your connection to the people that are suffering? How are you interacting with them? And then the other famous American line is, well, I give to this charity. Who cares? Your money is meaningless. I just think this whole system of giving money to charities is just half-baked because the personal connection ultimately is way more important for the continuation of the race than a few bucks you give to pay for a salary for an administrative assistant who only responds to 3% of the emails that go through her box anyways. Come on, people. The work is the investment in human relationships, not the business of trading human relationships to gain membership and capital. I hate the way people talk like you barter with relationships. I don't care about your institution growing. I don't. 
may all the institutions crumble with Jerusalem in the Gospel of Matthew. I don't care. I care about the suffering of the young black youth who feel despair because no one cares that black youth are dying. And I don't care if you think they're a criminal or not. I don't, because you're not the judge. There is one judge, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And even Jesus himself has no right to comment on his judgment, which is ahead of us. This is the attitude that we have to acquire from hearing this teaching, Richard. Both sides don't understand the only security that the Father of Jesus Christ can bring. The person who wants law and order in this life wants it because they don't trust the law and order of the Father. And the person who wants compassion and love and good feelings in this life don't trust in the compassion and love that God alone can bring. Neither side wants to put their trust in God. And I was reading this author, Dr. Ibram Kendi, his book, Anti-Racism, which I think is a really wonderful book because of what it teaches me about the gospel. A racist is someone who is upholding racial hierarchies. And an anti-racist is someone who's breaking down those same hierarchies. So you're either building them up or you're breaking them down in every action. No matter what your race, what your gender, no matter what kind of person you are, every action you take is doing one or the other. And I like this about the gospel because in every action you take, you're either Torah or anti-Torah. Are you furthering the teaching or are you undermining the teaching? You can say something that you think is probably compatible with Torah, but is it? If it's not clearly building up Torah, you're on thin ice. And so if you're eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage, and you're not pro-Torah, if you're not Torah, you're likely anti-Torah. If you want to establish law and order, if you want to establish peace on earth, if you want to establish the kingdom today, anyone you're anti-Torah. You're anti-God. You are against God. You are the stumbling block. You are the Satan. You are the scandal that Jesus warns about. We have to give up the religion that we were catechized into on Facebook and turn to what Scripture teaches and what the Father of Jesus Christ expects when this day comes that no one knows about. Then there will be two men in the field, one will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one will be left. And I love this diptych of men and women expressing a totality. It is from east to west, meaning the total span. Everything will be covered, nothing will be left, no one is safe, it could happen to anyone. It, in a way, is similar to this metaphor in the film Avengers Endgame, where half of humanity disappeared. It's reminiscent of the civil war between Cain and Abel, where half of humanity was destroyed. 
Matthew himself refers to the flood, which again represents this annihilation. That's what we're talking about here, destruction, annihilation. It's like this wave that begins with the destruction of Jerusalem in chapter 24 and keeps rolling forward until the judgment that's coming in Matthew chapter 25. But for those who want to explain why it's okay that Dante Wright, a 20-year-old boy, was shot in the back running away from a cop unarmed because he was a criminal. I know, all of you now are going to be upset at me and you're going to shut the podcast off and complain that Father Mark was talking about politics. Well, you're full of it. This has nothing to do with politics. I don't vote. My business is the kingdom of God. I'm not interested in your politics. I'm interested in the people whom we as ministers are assigned to take care of with the teaching of Jesus Christ. Just because this young boy isn't in my church doesn't mean that it's not my duty as a follower of Jesus Christ to be concerned for him and to care for him. And not because I'm a priest, but because he's my brother. It doesn't matter what he did or didn't do. He's my brother, and he was shot in the back, and he was a kid. Even if he did something horrible, I still have a duty to chase him all the way to hell to try to help him. Everyone who wants to excuse what happened to him by trying to explain that something was wrong with him has to hear Matthew chapter 24 and remember that in the blink of an eye, while we're all sitting around yapping and talking and uttering vain words, the Lord will appear and it'll be over and there will be a reckoning and the Lord will decide who the criminal is and who the righteous one is. The analogy you brought up of the Avengers, I think it's really important because in the Avengers, the one who made half of humanity disappear was the ultimate bad guy. In Matthew 24, it's the father of Jesus who's going to do this. The good guy in the Avengers was the Avengers who went and defeated the ultimate bad guy and who brought those people back to life. Here's the thing. Let's play out Avengers Endgame for another hundred years. 50% of those people aren't left. They're all dead after 50 years, after 100 years, after 200 years. They're all dead. So who's the ultimate bad guy? The death is inevitable. Dante Wright eventually was going to die. His mother eventually is going to die. Is it okay that he died now? I don't know. That's up to God to decide, as cold-hearted as that sounds. We're all going to die. We all have to detach from this world. The problem is we all cause suffering to others while we're alive. This is the problem. Why? Because in order to keep our stones stood up, in order to keep our bubble wrap around us, we're willing to drag anybody 
through anywhere. We're allowed to say to our brother that if they permeate our bubble wrap, they have betrayed us. And we're justified in cutting them off in our anger towards them, in despising them because they had the audacity to mess with my bubble wrap. They have no faith. They have no faith except in the work of their own hands, the work of their own bubble wrap. That is the only faith that they have. In your attachment to the safety that you think you provided for yourself so that you can eat and drink and marry and give in marriage causes suffering to your brother. Because you are not pro-Torah, because you have not brought this Torah into your heart, you cause suffering to others, and ultimately, the one who weeps is God. And, by the way, for all of you on the left who are self-satisfied that there's a bad guy in the story of Dante Wright, it's possible, as bad as this is, that this police officer did, in fact, make a mistake. It's possible that you can have a bad story with no bad guys except the institution that creates the situation. Nobody's righteous. No, not one. So everyone needs to get off their high horse. I can't stand it when people talk about following the example of Jesus Christ. It's ridiculous. How can you follow the example of the crucifixion while you're speaking? It's impossible. You can't follow the example of Jesus. The example of Jesus is execution, powerlessness. If you still have the power to accuse, you make yourself the enemy of Jesus Christ. So please, don't worry about following anyone's example. Don't worry about making your point. There is one judge. Jesus himself, as Matthew is teaching us here, was powerless before his Father. Make yourself powerless before the Father and show as much concern and mercy towards the police officer as you do towards Dante. And let God sort the mess out. Let's just be concerned with showing mercy towards one another and lessening the killing. My daughter heard a black student in one of her classes, the only black student in one of her classes, say, my heart goes out to Derek Chauvin because going to prison is no picnic. The prison system dehumanizes, and now here's one more person who's going to be dehumanized by the prison system. This is a person who is not Jesus Christ, but next to Jesus Christ were two thieves who deserved the punishment they got. They were suffering from the dehumanization of the Romans. The Romans believe in stones, in creating security and order by the sword. There is no hope in God. There is no hope that God will sort it out. And there is no hope in the justice that the Father of Jesus will bring. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.